0: We have as our special guest Dr. Laurel LeMasters, who is a member here at Apostles. Her husband is a Sunday school teacher and also on the vestry, I believe. Is that that right? Yes. Um, Laurel is a graduate of Furman University, where she got her undergraduate degree in chemistry, but then went on to work with IBM as a systems engineer for six years before going to the University of Miami. Um, to pursue um, an M.D. degree. At that point, she met a special friend who is with her tonight. Dina, would you want to wave your hand? (laughs) She's here visiting with us, and we're grateful for her presence. Um, She did her residency in general surgery and then went on to do residency in radiology and now um, works in private practice as a radiologist. Um, she is the youngest of seven children, originally from Chicago, Illinois, and she's married with four children, and we're, we have the special um, treat of having one of her children here tonight all the way from Argentina, who's in studying abroad, and so welcome, glad you're here. So I'm going to turn it over now to um, Laurel, so let's give her a round of applause and a welcome. <laughs>
1: Thank you. And you're turning me on? Yes, I am. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Um, It's kind of fun. I'm pulling in all my friends here. Um, Dina, Dr. Evans, oh, Dr. Evans-Tice, I should say. Yes, sorry. Um, and I go way back to residency and we're both ended up in Atlanta. We don't see each other hardly ever. And so through a patient of hers heard that I was going to be here. So it's so fun that she would just drop in here today. So I love it. Um, I'm very honored to be here and very humbled that to think that I would have anything that would be of use for you all. Um, I realize when you do genuine wisdom that there's the young people, and then the older ladies. And now I realize I'm the older lady, <laughs> and um, that's actually okay. Um, it's it's kind of interesting, but it's it's going to be fun. So I'm I'm very honored to be here. I want to tell you pretty much my story and the story of people around me, and um, we'll hopefully have some time for questions, and um, and then we'll talk. Together in groups afterwards about some things, challenges that I'll put in front of you. I wanted to start by telling you a story about my mother. She's 92, and she just moved to Atlanta at age 92. She's starting a new phase of her life. Um, most of us think by at that age that we're, you should be done. At 92, you should be done. But she has a lot more living to do. And she moved from a comfortable place um, with my oldest sister in southern Idaho, in the middle of nowhere, to a high-rise senior living place in metropolitan Atlanta. She's furnishing her new apartment and meeting new friends and starting a new regimen every day. She starts with breakfast with the ladies. mostly all ladies. (laughs) Um, She goes to exercise class, and then she follows it with Tai Chi, and then she relaxes in the afternoon a little bit, sleeping, resting, and reading the Wall Street Journal in the library, and she catches up on her emails and texts with her iPhone, iPad, and laptop computer, and she finds new biographies on Margaret Thatcher and the Arab-Israeli conflict, and um, she digs into those on the couch She usually goes to dinner at the 4.30 seating (laughs) and is usually in her jammies by about 7.30. She fits in quarter bingo. She won her first time there. And she goes to watercolor class, and she's even gone on the little secret outing they have that's arranged by the staff. And she's generally having the time of her life. Who would have thought at age 92? Now, my mom is um, the most unassuming of women. Uh, she lived through the depression, and she found Jesus at um, about age seventeen by the consideration of the fact as she was walking home from junior college one day that the whole world uses the date of jesus' birth as the date that we all use. everyone around the world uses two thousand and sixteen because it's two thousand and sixteen years after Jesus' birth, or you know eventually somewhere in there, but she was struck by that that The the thing that her parents had taught her about was probably real if the whole world used that date, and that's how she came to follow Jesus. She married very young. Um, She became a missionary in Venezuela with my dad. They were with New Type Tribes missions, and somehow she managed to give birth and raise seven happy, healthy, and well-adjusted children. Of course, the last part's somewhat subjective. She made ends meet by taking her kids along with her in a red wagon, reading water meters. And she was inventive and quite resourceful uh, to figure out how to make ends meet. She then went to nursing school after her seventh child got into school. I was the seventh. So when I started kindergarten, she decided to go to nursing school. Um, That's how we made it through college, basically. My sister and I were the only ones who got to go to college, and it was basically on my mom's um, night shift dollars. So my mom's always been my hero. She's been my role model, and she's Wonder Woman. Be assured, uh, she drives me crazy, as mothers always do. Karyanna, you can attest. But she's incredible. I told her I was going to tell you all about her, and she was, of course, angry. <laughs> um, I would come home from middle school and even into high school um, to all her nursing things. She learned to give shots on a grapefruit and she would listen to heart rhythms on a recording while she prepared dinner. And then she'd find sleep somehow during the day after a tough night shift. I became interested in medicine because of her. And I learned the whole idea of the work ethic to just keep working it. Um, I thought she could do anything And even though it may not have been said outright, she made me believe I could do anything. But what was so intriguing about my mom, and it still is, is that she's always been quite content. I can't tell you how many times she quoted that scripture about I choose to be content in all things. Um, I essentially grew up pretty dirt poor. Um, We lived in the parsonage of a church with three bedrooms and seven children. in one bathroom, but I never felt deprived or unhappy because my mom knew where her source of peace was and where joy came from. She was always after the heart of God in her marriage, with her kids, and with her work. Can I tell you that I think my mom's wonderful? (laughs) But I tell you not about my mom because of what she's done. Um, She's 92 and not done, and that's the point. Um, Some of you tend to think that where you are, if you haven't done something already, it's over. Um, Life is, it has its seasons and it has its times. And I want you to remember that the older I get, the more I see that the seasons are good. And that we have times that we do certain things and times that we're done with certain things. But that it's not over at any time. Um, Time just keeps marching on, and things just keep happening. And I would never have written down the things that have happened in my life. The twists and turns are what make it interesting. The unknowns, the impossibles, and the crazy things that happen and change everything. That's what makes the story. Uh, My story's my story, and your story's your story. Um, I'm encouraged to tell you that my story is that I think I'm halfway through. Now, I'm 54, so I think I'm halfway through. It's kind of optimistic, but I think I'm halfway through. Uh, I named my youngest daughter Corey. Um, her real name is Coral, which is after my mother, which you can sort of understand why I wanted to name her after my mother. Uh, but she's also, we call her Corey, after Corey Ten Boone from The Hiding Place. Now, if you've not read The Hiding Place, it's a must read. You absolutely must read about Corey Ten Boone. Mm, but the reason I love her story is that the book starts and her story starts when she's about 50 years old. And I've clung to that fact for a while that up until that point, her life was pretty boring and pretty non-important. Maybe even in terms of the kingdom of God, it was all all preparatory. But her her story started at age 50. Um, God had lots of things in mind for her. She was just where she needed to be to accomplish God's purposes. And that's what I want. I want to be right where I'm supposed to be. At the ready. For whatever God calls me to do. So you heard about my bio. Um, it's a lot of crazy twists and turns for 54 years. Now I finished college at age 20. And um, I had to have my parents sign my first employment contract. Because <laughs> I was not yet of age. Um, I worked for six years in systems engineering and sales at a time when IBM was kind of the thing. You know, it was, um, it's like working for Google now. It, it was hot tamale stuff. I mean, I got a job at IBM. And um, I married my college sweetheart after about six years of dating on and off. And there's a lot of stories there. Um, and after about one year of really easy, nice, sweet marriage... Uh, We were both working for the right companies, and we were in a nice condo and on a right track. Um, Then we turned the cart over and decided to start over. So I had been dissatisfied with corporate life, and I knew it didn't meet my needs, and I was itching toward medicine. Um, I would study for the MCAT in the evenings after work, and I took the additional couple courses for a um, pre-med readiness. And so I went to med school. Craig always said it was a bait-and-switch phenomena. I, um, I married him, and I had pretty nails and nice clothes and a fancy sports car, and I smelled nice. And, and the next thing you know, I smell like formaldehyde-laden cadavers, and I'm wearing greens all the time, and we're eating grilled cheese and Cuban coffee at every meal. Uh, we spent the next 13 years in medical school and multiple residencies, smelly, tired, haggard, and poor. Uh, And even that had some turns. So I did well in medical school. I had come in on a a scholarship and finished in the top of my class. And I was offered um, one of the most prestigious of residencies at the University of Miami in the five-year general surgery program. Now, you may want to challenge that because she went to the urology program at the University of Miami. Uh, But they gave the spot to about six people in the several thousands that wanted that job. And I chose the general surgery one because I could because I had the grades, and I had the uh, recommendation, and frankly, I just thought it was the coolest thing. Now, I honestly don't know if I sought God about his advice about that. Um, I just thought it was the best thing you could do, so I would do it. And I still think that surgery is the coolest specialty. Um, I'll give it to you, (laughs) that there is something wonderful about opening up somebody's belly after a gunshot wound, and it's quite exhilarating. Now, Miami did provide the patients, and we were a level one trauma center, and in the early 90s, there were plenty of gunshot wounds and stab wounds, and MVAs, that's motor vehicle accidents, and generally lots of sick immigrant people needing surgery. So it was a rush, for sure. Um, But there was an incredible price to pay. Um, I basically lived at the hospital, day and night, and they all ran together, and I became a tired piece of human flesh. I was overworked and generally underappreciated. And for all the bravado to get into the program, we became cheap labor, gophers, and transport agents. Sure, we had lots of on-the-job training, and I know I became a great clinician because of my experience there, but the pound of flesh it exacted was incredible. I did not want to become one of those doctors, mean, angry, and treating people miserably. No one had a life outside the hospital. It was, in my mind, the worst hazing incident you could ever live through. Now, being a woman made it all especially difficult. Um, The sexism was rampant, even in a progressive program like the one at Miami. I had an attending once who was a little handsy and he made provocative comments and asked for favors to try to get special accommodation for some of the residents. And I never bowed to his pressure, but I can tell you one night, he had it out on me. Dr. Sosa, (laughs) he screamed and cursed at me one night um, for a moment of tenderness that I had shown to a fellow employee. And he argued that I should never appear weak and that I should never be nice to people. And he was ferocious. He took out all his frustrations on me that night. Now, the incident was witnessed by multiple patient families in the trauma recovery room. And many letters flowed to the administration. And I made a formal complaint. And the response I got was, oh, Laurel, that's how it is. We need him because we need to bring laparoscopy to the hospital. Just put up with it. Now, that should tell you something about how long ago this was because laparoscopy was just beginning. And that's where they put the camera in and do things, you know, like that they do all the time, but it was brand new for us then. So, um, But it was, it was not a, a pleasant place to be. And I, I would say that as much as we've come, so far we've come, you guys know that's still out there. Um, we worked in inhumane conditions with uh, cardboard-covered bunks in our call room. Uh, we worked through sickness, we would give each other IV fluids and antiemetics, that's to keep you from vomiting when we had the flu, just to get through the day. Some people slept with attendings or fellows in attempts to get a better schedule or more OR time. I think my daughter watches a show that looks a lot like that. <laughs> um, one of my senior residents, a lovely woman with a giant heart, was one of the only other residents who was married at the time. So I watched her closely. How were we supposed to pull this off? How many Subway sandwiches could Craig eat at the hospital? (laughs) Little did I know that her husband was sick. Really sick. We only knew when she finally had the boldness to ask for a few hours off. She had not missed a day or even one surgical event. But she was just like us, just chained to the hospital. But that afternoon, she was bold. She needed to go to her husband's funeral. He had died of leukemia while we worked steadily on. It was crazy. Now, when I had a baby, and I'll tell you more about that later, everything changed. Somehow, I needed to get home. <laughs> I was missing the very best thing that ever happened in our world, and Craig was with him, and I wasn't. I even one night mistook my baby for one of the babies I was caring for in the burn unit ICU, thinking I needed to put an IV in my crying baby. I was working at an unsustainable pace and even staying up one time four days and four nights straight in the transplant service, completely missing my time at home with my new baby. So in a moment of incredible bravery, Craig and I just started to start over once more. (laughs) Just because I'd invested so much time and energy in the general surgery program did not mean that that was the only course I could go. So I had done well, and I had a good reputation in the hospital, so I was offered a spot outside the match. That's the normal way residents get jobs. But I went into the Miami residency, uh, Radiology Program. Um, in a moment, I went from being a, a general surgeon, PGY-3, into a radiology resident, PGY-1, back to the bottom again. Uh, It was somewhat humiliating at first. I had gone from being a big man on campus, aka surgeon, to a helper dude, aka radiologist. I didn't open the bellies and chests anymore. I helped other people decide when they should open the bellies and chests. But I'll tell you what I did, I chose to be content. I can actually say now, many years later, that I do love radiology the intellectual pursuit and the repetitive nature of the day's work fits me perfectly. I've now been in two different partnerships and have now transitioned to a solo practice working from home. It's provided a wonderful lifestyle and I'm now nearing retirement and it suits me well. Uh, I read images at home now for generally for orthopedic surgeons for um, MRIs of the joints and um, some bellies. So what can I tell you from my journey Basically, I didn't know what was ahead. And I can tell you for you, you don't know what's ahead. You don't know what's coming. You really don't. And even those of you who are good type A's like me and plan everything out in advance, you really don't know what's coming. But God does. (laughs) That's such a comfort to me. I love the passage from Isaiah that tells us that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. He's God and we're not probably a mantra we could say to ourselves over and over. Um, God has purposes in mind. Isaiah 46 says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is kind of where I've been for about 10 years, percolating on this sovereignty of God. Um, It was new to me at this church. I have to tell you, I learned it in Sunday school. And when I was the teacher. (laughs) So sometimes you learn best when you're teaching. So Craig and I were teaching the third and fourth grade. And I can tell you, Anna was in this class, whatever it was, the third or fourth grade. And they gave us a curriculum. And I thought it was quite Presbyterian because it was all about sovereignty of God. And um, the idea is that God doesn't just know what's going to happen, but that he purposes what will happen. Very Presbyterian, and especially for a girl raised in the Assembly of God tradition, this was sort of new, this idea that God really is in charge. We taught one lesson about the king and his water course, and I don't know if you know that verse in Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And I remember our lesson was that we got a pitcher of water and a couple bowls and we would have the kids pour it blindfolded and then we would move it from one bowl to the next, you know, and show that even if you thought you were doing one thing, God could change your heart enough to change the whole direction of things. It was so meaningful to me teaching third and fourth grade uh, curriculum. Um, The notion that God changes our hearts, that is my heart, your heart, other people's hearts, into wanting what he wants. That's how he's accomplishing his purpose. He is sovereign with us or without us. This has become very comforting for me. The idea that God's will can't be thwarted. It can't be distorted or ruined. Even when I'm stupid, sinful, or disobedient. Basically, even I can't ruin things. It gives me great freedom just to continue on my course, doing the best I can, knowing God will rearrange me, or rearrange the world, to make things right again. In my world, it means my career choices were not mistakes. They were just steps along the way. It meant he planted me, in me, the desire To have children. Uh, Sometimes when things don't go the way we want them to go, people in the church unwittingly say some silly things. They tell us, oh, that must mean that God doesn't want you to do that or have that. Sometimes it just means that he wants us to work harder or to be patient or just trust him more. Now, I knew I wanted children and I always have. So in my last two years of medical school, Craig and I tried to have a baby. And month after month, I cried my little eyes out. And then I found I had a tumor in my pituitary. Now, it wasn't one of those big bad things, but it was just one that spit out enough hormone to keep me from getting pregnant. And it was heartbreaking. So I started on medicine, but by that time, I was starting my surgical internship. Not a good time to have a baby. So I took medicine all the way through and just worked. In my third year of residency, I realized the clock was ticking, and I was getting older, and we thought we'd better get after it. So I had another heartbreak, a pregnancy and a late miscarriage. I was actually reported derelict of duty when I had to go get a DNC while on call. And then I returned to work bleeding and broken. I can remember... Thinking that it could not ever hurt so much. In the moment, things hurt so much. But our God is sovereign. We don't see, we can't see. But He who is above and beyond all time, He knows it works out in the end. It always works out in the end. Can I say it again? It always works out in the end. Sometimes the end is heaven. (laughs) Sometimes it's when he's going to return. But for those of us who know him, it always works out. J.R. Tolkien said that in the end, whatever the end is, he makes all the sad things untrue. I love that quote. I told Carrie, I thought it was actually C.S. Lewis. It's Tolkien who said that. He'll make all the sad things untrue. I just love that idea that God's gonna take away every tear from our eyes. All the things that have been so hard will be not there when we're with him. Now born again people are the only ones who can honestly declare it's gonna be okay. Because sometimes it does not feel okay. Next time you hear someone say it's gonna be okay, think about whether it's true for that person do they know him, then yes, it will be okay. If they don't, then maybe not. For you, I pray it'll always be okay. So you know my story ends up quite happy in this regard. Um, Lots of prayers for a baby, lots of people praying that I didn't know, quite embarrassing in fact. Um, Lots of people praying for me to have a baby and in my third year of surgical residency, the Lord brought us our precious Stephen. Um, they'd never had a surgical resident have a baby before. Um, now, the way it worked at this time was that so you got four weeks of vacation in a residency, and they would tell you when the four weeks started. In fact, we would come on July 1. That's when the you know year started. And we'd come on July 1, and some people got July 1 through July 28th, but you didn't know that until July 1. So you pretty much got your four weeks. And then the rest of the year... You, there were no days off at all, so you, but you got your four weeks. So when I went to go talk to them about the fact that I was going to have a baby and I would need to probably coordinate when my time off was, the answer was, no, we don't think so. <laughs> so I had to try to explain to them that what would I be doing that day <laughs> that I actually underwent childbirth. So I don't know what they expected me to do. Eventually, they did give me my time off to start at my due date which was very big of them. Um, unfortunately, Stephen did not arrive on time. And I had to call the OBGYN and said, I am now on maternity leave and I have no baby. <laughs> so we induced that baby because four weeks goes by pretty fast. And then, because God has an incredible sense of humor, the twins arrived 21 months later. All those prayers had been answered in full, right? So Carrie Anna is one of the twins and she has a twin brother, David. So um, it's a handful I got to do my radiology resident with three babies in tow, all in diapers, all three in um, high chairs, and I chose to be content. Crazy, but content, okay? Um, I can't help but to mention that God is so gracious and sweet. He blessed us with one more, six years after the twins, one more baby for me to love and hold. She keeps me young and reminds me that life is not nearly over. My own little Corey Tenpoon. So God is sovereign. I really believe it. You look at me, and you, it all looks really good and pretty with our family, especially on Facebook. It looks really good. <laughs> but just like Facebook, you know that there's some parts that are not so pretty. There's things that are hard. There's things that are dirty and messy, and we all have it. Um, God is not detained because of that. He's not late, and he's not wrong he will accomplish his purpose. It's something we can stand on, believe in, and trust him about. Now, there is the words to the Lauren Daigle song, I Will Trust in Him. Do you guys like that song as much as me? I actually meant to bring it with me, and I don't think I have it. But it talks about, so the mountain's not going to move. I'm going to trust in you anyway. If you have not heard that song, listen to it tonight on the way home. Because it reminds us that God is God and we're not, and we can trust him even when it's not looking so pretty, even when it's not Facebook or Insta-worthy. My challenge to you is to trust him when the mountains don't move. But here's the kitsch. Ask him to move the mountains. Don't back away from the fact that uh, our God is able and more than able. He can do more than we can even ask or imagine. He has commanded us in his word to ask, He's honored when we pray and ask him for the desires of our heart. He wants to give us the desires of our heart. He also wants to plant the desires in our heart. He desires to fulfill them. It's the father in him. Most of us are leery of praying um, big prayers. You know, Joshua, he asked for the sun and the moon to stand still. And God heard him. In James 5, the Bible says the prayer of a righteous man, and we'll say the prayer of a righteous woman, is powerful and effective, and it tells us about the fact that Elijah asked for no rain, and the rain was held back for three years. And then he asked for rain, and it rained. Even Jesus told us to ask a mountain to move, and it will be moved, and that nothing is impossible with God. I'd like to encourage you to remember who our God is. The power of prayer doesn't rest with us or in our prayers themselves, but in the God who hears our prayers. We can't find a magic formula or a specific uh, word choice to influence God. Now, Remember, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for uh, big flowery prayers. He wants us to communicate with him our biggest desires. He wants us to pray for others rather than just ourselves. He wants us to pray in his will. But I don't know about you. Most of the time I don't know his will. So we just pray. We can he can sort out the silly prayers from the useful prayers. He's not offended with our ostentatious prayers or even this even with our meaningless desires. The question is, what are we afraid of? That he might say no? Or that he might say, wait? I think if you know God can answer your prayers, he's able, you can pray with a holy confidence. I've always wondered about people who don't believe in asking for wins in athletic competition. I understand Peyton Manning says he doesn't pray for his team to win. He chooses his way. I can't imagine that God would have trouble or that he would be stymied by the fact, oh no, two believers are both asking to win. What should I do? His purposes will be accomplished. I think he's honored when I ask him to win. And my little girl plays tennis. Laura's one of her coaches. And I can't tell you what a spiritual experience I have watching her play tennis. Because I am begging for God to help her win. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you, I pray it all the time. And God doesn't always have her win. That's not the point, is it? The point is that I know who he is. And that he can. He's able. If the other side wins... We've not been abandoned. He just knows the end from the beginning and what's good for us and glorious for him. I can trust him with the answer. My job is to ask. I love the verse that says, we receive not because we ask not. How bold are you about asking God for big things? Now, the best part of real prayer is seeing what's impossible in the natural world and knowing God did something so that we, have, we know who did it. We know it was God. It wasn't something natural. If we only pray for things that are explained away in the natural, then we can always say, oh, isn't, isn't that nice how it worked out? You got home safely. Your cold got better. The food nourished us well. Ask for more. Remember your big God. The more specific a prayer is, the more glory God gets when the prayer is answered. What about praying for a family member who's so far from God? Only God can breathe life into them. What about praying for healing for someone when doctors say, no way? What about the job that you want but you don't feel qualified for? What about that boy that has your eye? What's wrong with praying for that? What about praying for a situation that you just can't see any resolution at all? Then God can do something spectacular more than you can ask or think. Now, I believe in a big God. It's kind of my thing. Anna has heard this for 10 years. I'm talking about our big God, our big, big God. Um, I'm an example of God doing something more than imaginable. I'm a... A little kid from a poor family, making my way in a hostile world. And I can tell you declaratively that he is not finished with me yet. He's a big God and he's been so faithful. Because of him, I continue to ask him big, hairy, audacious things. Now you guys have heard of BHAG goals. Maybe in, in any business classes, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal. I think that's BHAG. You know, I say make it be a prayer a behap, (laughs) big prayers that only God can do. You don't have to tell anybody because sometimes they're downright crazy. But you'll be amazed what God can do when you ask him. He's God and I'm not. I just let him hear my thoughts and desires and wants because he is, by the way, the lover of my soul. So what do I leave you with today from my first half of life? The sovereignty of God, that God knows, and he causes, and we can trust him. That everything is going to be okay in your life and mine. And the secret of our real, full, contented life is speaking to the king, your father, every day about your hopes, your dreams, and your unspeakable desires for you and for others. I want you to encourage you to spend time knowing this God, remembering who you are, a child of the king. If we know him, if we glimpse him as he really is, like from the cleft of the rock like Moses did, just a glimpse, it will never be the same. He wants for you what you can't even fathom, and he knows what's coming So I leave you tonight as a pleasure to be with you. I hope to know you and know your journey and know who you are, where you struggle and where you succeed and where God plants himself in you. Blessings to you. It's been a pleasure.